The psalmist declares, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed indeed are we as we make the Lord our trust. So let us ask him to equip us, to guide us, to employ us this evening in a way that will bring him honor as we put our hope in him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so easily distracted, our hearts flitting from this to that to the next. But Lord, we know that you would have us focus on you, to honor you, to glorify you. We ask, therefore, that you would so work within us by the Spirit who dwells in all of your people, that together we might bring you glory. And Lord, we ask that you would not only bring glory to yourself, but draw your people closer to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Hear now his greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing uh, praise together to the Lord from number 72 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 72 stands a 1, 3, 4, and 5.
For our confession this evening, we use the Nicene Creed. We're going to uh, use that as we find it in our Trinity Psalter Hymnal, page 852. 852. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our psalm reading this evening is Psalm 115. This is a a beautiful psalm for the people of God who live in the midst of unbelievers. This is increasingly our psalm. It starts out with a, a plea, a recognition that all the glory belongs to God, but then it gets into the crux of the matter. Why should the people say, where is their God? We get that a lot, don't we? Where is your God? How do you know that he's real? Why do you follow these writings that are ancient, these writings that have no relevance to today? Where is your God? You see, the the people who serve false gods, they're accustomed to, to manipulating their gods, to manipulating their situation. 
In ancient times, that was done through uh, idolatry, through idols that they would serve, thinking that that obligated the God to act, to respond in a particular way. Today, they do it in a variety of ways, much of which involves co-opting science or calling upon the false idea of karma. But it all comes back to, I want to be in charge. I want to sit on the throne. And so they laugh at us when we say that we're not in charge, that we can't have ultimate effect, that we're not calling the shots. But the psalmist reminds us those idols are empty. They're lies. They can't do any actual good when, in fact, we have the God who has promised to bless us, who has already provided everything we need every single day, who even spares us from the dead. And our calling is to give Him glory. This is is a psalm for the people of God who serve Him through Christ in the midst of an unbelieving world. This is our psalm. The psalmist writes, Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that please, all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. What a glorious confession that is especially when we are so surrounded by those who insist on sitting on the throne themselves. So let's make that confession together as we sing Psalm 115, Selection A, from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, 115, Selection A.
as we praise the Lord in prayer. Um, just an update on Norm DeWeird. Um, the blood work that they've been drawing indicates that things aren't uh, quite stable enough for him to have had surgery today. So they're trying to get everything in a proper balance so that he can have surgery on his hip tomorrow. So please pray for Norm. The, the pain's not as bad as it was yesterday, but it's also not good. So uh, pray for comfort for him and, and also for Carol. And uh, let's pray for the outreach of the church. This, the calling, the task that we have is great, but the God whom we serve is greater. Let's pray. Lord, with the psalmist we pray, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Father, we hear the cries of those who reject you. Who question every morality. Who overturn truth and right. Who call us fools for trusting in the living God. Because it renders us, or rather acknowledges us, to be weak and powerless. But Father, we confess that we take comfort in the knowledge of our weakness. Because along with that knowledge comes the knowledge that you are absolutely sovereign and perfectly good. Father, we confess nothing good can we do apart from you. We cannot acknowledge and repent of our sins. We cannot believe and embrace the truth. We cannot set our faith in Christ or respond as we ought by the power within us, nor can any other. You tell us in your word that from the start we are dead in sin, not sick, not wounded, not misguided, but dead. Spiritual corpses who are utterly and completely dependent on you to bring us into life. And Father, we confess that that is what you have done for us. You have shown us the emptiness, the misery, the death of our sin. And you have imparted life. So that we might long to know you. So that we might understand your word. So that we might put our faith in Christ and rest wholeheartedly in Him. Father, we praise You for that. And at the same time, we acknowledge that there are multitudes who don't know You. Even among our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, we grieve that they live in rebellion against You, thinking themselves capable of doing what is necessary to live. It's folly. It's emptiness. It will bring them unto destruction unless you transform their hearts. And so, Father, we lay before you those whom we know, whom we love, who do not yet submit unto you. We pray that you would humble them through whatever means you, dis, uh, you have designed. 
that you would show them that you are faithful and good and that you would draw them. Recognizing, teaching them to recognize their powerlessness. And Father, we pray that for the multitudes throughout our country and throughout our world who rage against their impotence, who insist against all evidence that they are sufficient for their needs. We pray that you would demonstrate to them that they are in fact not. That they are weak and powerless and without hope apart from the hope of Christ. Fill your church with conviction and lead us to bring them in love but with, pa- with passion the truth of their condition and also the truth, the glorious wonder of the gospel that in Christ all that we need is ours if only we will trust in Him. Father, we think of the multitude of those who are grieving and hurting and lost and suffering and lacking the basic necessities in Syria and in Turkey. Your church is so small there. The people who know where true hope is to be found are tiny and weak and oppressed and mocked. And yet they are the ones to whom the truth that would bring life and hope have been entrusted. Father, we pray that you would that you would fill with courage and conviction and power your people in Turkey and in Syria and in the regions around them. That you would use both the, the help that they bring and the word of truth that they profess so that those who are grieving without hope, so that those who have no idea where they're going to find their daily bread can look to you and find not just their daily bread, but the bread of life. Not just hope for the moment, but hope for eternity. And Lord, we pray that you would work that same power through your church in every land. Make us to be convicted of the fact that that you've given us the only hope, the only truth, the the only life that is to be found. And cause us to so love our neighbor that we would take the time to get to know them and to love them and to show them the compassion of Christ So that when they ask the reason for the hope within us, we might tell them, in fact, might offer to them entrance into your eternal kingdom through faith in your Son. Father, we pray that you would raise up our children and our children's children, not only to know and love you, but to be more passionate, more bold, more consistent as witnesses of the gospel of Christ than we, their parents and grandparents, have been. Cause them to delight in the lessons that they hear from the pulpit and from their catechism classes. 
caused them in studying this world, whether literature or mathematics or science or history or poetry or what have you, caused them to recognize that you are the source of all knowledge, that you are the one who makes it all make sense, that it is in you, that it is in you that true knowledge and wisdom are found. To that end, Lord, we pray for the parents who are schooling their children and for the day schools that our children attend, that these might all root their lessons in the Bible, in your truth, but also in the fear of the Lord, so that our young ones might see that it's not Christ for salvation and man for the rest, but Christ the King of all, who makes the world make sense, who gives us hope and help in all things, so that they might live consistently before the eyes of the world, not serving the false gods that our neighbors serve in certain areas and the true God in others, but serving you, acknowledging you, confessing you in all of life. Father, we lay before you the needs of our brothers and our sisters. We think especially of Norm this day, how he is dealing with such a significant setback, how he's been dealing with a lot of pain and and frustration and waiting. Lord, we pray that you would cause him to be patient, that you would comfort and strengthen both him and Carol, that you would give them your peace in the knowledge that you and you alone can provide precisely what they need. We pray for other members who are dealing with chemotherapy and immunotherapy and various treatments for cancer, for broken bones, for other ailments of the body. We pray for those who are distant from us, Lord. We think especially of Peter as he is on deployment in Europe, but also our, our shut-in members who uh, would long to be with us but who cannot because of age or infirmity, and those who are living in distant places like uh, Greta and Austin and Liz and Nathan and Calvin and Joanna, we pray that you would bless our distant members and draw them close to you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would bless our family members and friends who are in need. We think of uh, Joby and Gary and Mary. We think of Jim and Di. We think of uh, little Barrett. Lord, we pray for these and many others, acknowledging that you are the one who possesses what each one needs. And Lord, we pray for our consistory and our council as our office bearers prepare to meet tomorrow, addressing weighty matters of the spiritual needs of the saints. We ask, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and unity and grace that they might take up these matters before them with understanding, but also with a recognition that you are the one that they and the church at large needs. And now, Father, as we look to your word, portions of your word that remind us how powerless we are, but also how great you are, fill us with the conviction of your goodness and your grace that we might go forth from this place with a renewed confidence 
that the king of kings whom we serve is utterly and completely sufficient for our every need. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to look to God's word, let's stand and sing together. Number 119 from our Psalter hymnal, number 119, we'll sing all the stanzas. Well, we're going to look together this evening at Lord's Day 24, but first I'd like to read with you from Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Mark 10, verse 13, we read, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Now hold that thought a moment. 
I want you to recognize what's happening here. Because this really sets the tone for what's following. They're bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might bless them. Why? It's because Israel had long recognized and cherished the truth from God that we recognize and cherish. And that is that the promise is to you and to your children. They saw that these children were members of the covenant. That they had received the sign and seal of God's blessing. And seeing that Jesus was from God, that he was at the very least a prophet, some of them doubtless recognized that he was in fact the Christ. They wanted him to bless these children. But the disciples... The disciples thought, don't waste his time with these little children. What are they going to get out of it? They can't, they won't remember this. They're not going to ask him valid questions. They're children. He's not here for them. He's here for us. Come with good questions. Come to learn. Come to grow. Let the kids come later on. That's the subtext behind this. And I want you to see how Jesus answers that. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not receive it. Or shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So he acknowledges it's not just those who ask good questions. It's not just those who come with with great understanding and demonstrated faith. It's he comes for the weak. He comes for those who have nothing to offer. And then he faces someone who comes thinking he has much to offer. Listen, and he was and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother." And he said to him, "Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth." And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. Now keeping the lessons of that text in mind. Lord's Day 24 asks us three important questions. First, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? And the answer is because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? Well, the reward is not merited or earned. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Amen. Beloved servants of God in Christ, have you ever noticed how in some instances our definition of good undergoes significant change over the course of time? First time I ran a a 5K foot race, my definition of good was finish all 3.1 miles. Really didn't matter how fast, just finish. Now, when I on occasion run one of those, my definition of good involves a particular time. But my definition of good in a 5K would probably be laughably bad for some of you. Judging one's performance in a foot race, the the definition of good sort of depends, doesn't it? And that sliding scale of goodness can at times, now hear what I'm saying, can at times be applied to morality. What I mean by that is, We expect that a man who is provoked to anger should be able to properly restrain himself in word, in thought, and in deed. But a man who has been given to violent fits of rage in the past will consider it fairly good if he restrains himself to just spouting off some words. But after a time, that won't seem good anymore. After a time... We'll expect him to control not just his behavior, but also his words. Among men, good can often take on a sort of a fluid definition. Why is that? I mean, don't we believe that right is always right, that good is always good and bad is always bad? Well, of course we do. But we recognize that men are limited, flawed, deeply flawed. God's standard of good never changes. But men fall so far short of God's standard of goodness that sometimes it seems absolutely excellent when they just do better than they did. And so we start judging the goodness of a person's behavior not on the basis of perfection, but on the basis of better. 
Now that can be good in that it allows us to see improvement over time. But it's also dangerous. It's also dangerous because God is absolutely good. And he judges on the basis of his absolute goodness. God is the definition of good. And when we stand before him on that final day, he's going to ask, was there any sin? Was there any flaw? Was there any rebellion or imperfection that tainted this work? Because if so, it is not good at all. And folks, that leaves us in a pretty tight spot. Last week, studying the truths summarized in Lord's Day 23... We saw that we as Christians have the sure hope of eternal life, but not at all on the basis of what we have done. It's entirely and only on the basis of what Jesus has done, received by us through faith. And Lord's Day 24, what it does is it pauses there and asks, why is that? Why does it have to be entirely in Christ, entirely by grace? Why can't your works stand? And our catechism points out how desperately we need Christ. How worthless our works really are. What we're seeing here is that the absolute best things in life, now we know that phrase, right? The best things in life are free, but that's not true. Because the best things in life are the things about which Lord's Day 23 and Lord's Day 24 speak. The best things in life are peace with God, salvation, eternal life, reconciliation by and or to and adoption by God. Those are the best things in life, and there's nothing free about them. They cost more than we could possibly ever hope to pay. So the best things in life, they're not free. They're just free to us. They're gifts. They're something that God and God alone provides for us. And that's what we need to consider in Lord's Day 24. To recognize that the best things in life, the things that we most need, that we most crave, they're things we can only get as gifts given freely by the Lord. And that starts out with understanding that starts out with recognizing the righteousness that we need. So that's our first point. See, if we're to be able to stand before God on that last great day, on that day of judgment, we need to ask, on what basis will He judge us? What is good in God's sight? Jesus points us toward an answer when He receives the rich young man. The young man, He bows before Jesus and calls Him good teacher. And what's Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. See, God is the definition of good. What's right is right because God says it's right. What's good is good because it reflects the very character of God. But note what Jesus says there. No one among men manages to do that. Now, he's the exception because he's also fully God. But among us, every one of us falls short. Every one of us fails. Every one of us, whether in the things we say or the things we do or the things that we don't do or the motivation that leads us, 
And yet this guy, this man wants to know how to become good, how to become right with God. So Jesus recites the commandment. You know the law. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. And the guy says, I've done all that. Now, you want to dispute that, don't you? So do I. That's my natural reaction. Oh, I don't know about that. Didn't you ever have to get punished by your parents? Do you always do things with a pure conscience? But you notice what Jesus doesn't do is that. Instead, he loves the man. He says, I've done all this for my youth, and Jesus loves him. You see, Jesus can read the heart in a way we can't. He sees that the man is sincere. He's wrong, but he's sincere. He wants to be right with God. He thinks he's done everything necessary. So Jesus shows him what he hasn't done. Verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now what exactly is Jesus teaching us here? He's not saying, please hear this, he's not saying that wealth is always and inherently evil. He's not saying we can't be real Christians unless we take a vow of poverty. He's not saying that physical possessions are ungodly. No, Jesus is speaking to that man in the light of what he sees in that man's heart. He sees that that man's possessions have become to him an idol. They mean more to him than God does. He's willing to submit to God fully as long as it doesn't mean getting rid of his stuff. And so Jesus calls him to sacrifice his possessions for the sake of God. This is a call to holiness. We most often equate holiness, I think, with not doing bad stuff, right? And holiness is that. It's, it's not being defiled by sin, but it's more than that. It's not defiling ourselves with sin because we love God more. At the end of the day, holiness is being entirely and completely devoted to the Lord. And you can't be holy, therefore, if someone or something means more to you than God. Jesus knew that this man's possessions meant more to him than God did. And so he called the man to get rid of it. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Be holy. Cast off everything that means more to you than God. Because without holiness, we cannot stand in the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, the man responds by leaving. He rejects true holiness. And Jesus says, verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus hates rich folks? No. But Jesus' point here is that we need to be perfect To enter the kingdom of God. Perfect in righteousness, doing what we're called to do, but also perfect in holiness, not allowing anything to mean more to us than God does. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because wealth has become to them such a snare. It's come to mean so much to them. It's come to identify them. But the thing is, that's true for all of us because we're all rich. Some of us are rich in our bank book especially in comparison with most of the world. But riches aren't just something you can tabulate in dollars. Maybe what makes you rich is your family. Maybe what makes you rich is your talent, your ability. Maybe what makes you rich is that 
ability to set people at ease. Maybe what makes you rich. What is it that makes you rich? What is it that you cherish above all else? What is it when someone says, who are you? What is it that immediately pops to mind? Is it, I'm a child of God? Or is it related to your work, or to your hobby, or to your loved one, or to your children, or to your... In what way are you rich? If you would have eternal life, if you would be good in God's sight, then you must be righteous, doing what God commands, but also holy, being so devoted to God that nothing ever comes before Him. And we fall short. Every one of us. Heard a great sermon yesterday by Vadi Bauckham um, about the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a good one. He points out that we're usually pretty good about the whole idea of the world and the devil. Oh man, this world, this society is terrible. We need to turn away from it. I, I fall into that trap. You know, we live in an increasingly godless society. And boy, that can just lead us astray. It can snare us. That's a problem. And then we, we think about the devil and how crafty he is and how he's working in this situation trying to drag us down. We're okay with that. But then we get to the flesh. Ourselves. We all struggle the same way that young man did. At the end of the day, even if we could discount all the stuff we've done in the past, we, many of us, we, we could probably discipline ourselves to do what we're supposed to do. We're good at looking good. But do we allow our riches to be more important to us than God? your business, your children, your homeschooling, your hobby, your pastime, your passion. What is it that is more important to you? What is it that would cause you to go away sad? And of course then there's also the obedience part, the righteousness part. James tells us in James 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. And we all fail at more than one point. In fact, even when we obey God, even when we do what we're commanded to do, even when we outwardly keep the commands. I've honored my father and mother. I haven't killed, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen, but have you? I haven't killed, but boy do I dislike that guy. Let me tell you what he's done. And suddenly we've killed and we've borne false witness. Even the best that we do, Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even when we seek to serve God, even when we seek to do well, we end up guilty 
That's pretty depressing, isn't it? But my friends, we need to see the truth about ourselves. We desperately need, if we're to stand on that day of judgment based on what we have done, we desperately need righteousness and holiness. And we don't have them. Even if we just trust in Jesus to forgive all the sins we've committed before, we still need to be righteous and holy in God's sight, and we can't. We'll always fall short. And so we need to openly confess, not just before the world, but in our own hearts, the righteousness we need is what we cannot do. But if we can't do it ourselves, then from where can we get righteousness and holiness? And how can we regard our works as unworthy if God himself promises to reward them? Those are the questions that bring us to our second point, considering the reward we crave. Now, of course, the greatest reward... The one we should crave above all else is eternal life in the presence of God. When Jesus says that it is nearly impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples, I hope you notice this, the disciples are dumbfounded. Notice their remark in verse 26, then who can be saved? You see, God promised in places like Deuteronomy 30 and Leviticus 26 that he would bless those who followed him, those who obeyed him, those who showed their faith by their obedience, he would bless them. Physical riches were one of the ways he said he would bless them. And so the Jews had come to identify worldly riches with godliness. Now there are some problems with that. We're not going to get into those problems. But notice that Jesus doesn't even attack that. Instead, he just says, with man, it's impossible. If not even the rich can be saved, then who can be saved? With man, it is impossible. But all things are possible with God. There is no way that man can earn or work or merit or attain unto eternal life. But God does what man can't. Titus 3 says he saved us. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He does it all. We don't do any of it. Now, of course, plenty of folks claim falsely to be saved by Jesus when they're really trusting Jesus and. Instead of trusting Jesus alone, as I alluded to a minute ago, they say, well, yeah, I trust that Jesus forgave all my sins. And now I'm doing pretty good. Now I'm I'm following God's law. I'm living an upright life. But that's not trusting in Jesus. That's trusting in Jesus and me. Jesus and my merits. Jesus and my behavior. Jesus and my appearance, my church membership, my, my, my. But Jesus and has never saved a single soul. God rejects such folly. Remember what Jesus himself said early in our reading about who will belong to his father's kingdom. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How does a little child receive the kingdom of God? Last week, we saw two of our 
youngest members receive the sign and seal of God's covenant promises, how will little Aaron and Claire receive the kingdom of God? Will they work and strive and expect that they, as newborns or as three-year-olds or as eight-year-olds, that they will be able to do enough to satisfy God, to, to please God, to stand before His righteousness? With memories of their parents' discipline ringing in their heads and perhaps stinging their behinds, will they think that they can do enough? Of course not. They are going to enter God's kingdom the way children do, and that's by faith. They take Him at His word. Jesus loves me this, I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Period. A child enters the kingdom of God the way Isaiah urged the people of Israel to enter. In that same chapter that describes the filthiness, the worthlessness of our deeds. In that same chapter, the prophet calls the people to confess, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. There's no self-righteousness there. There's no personal merit there. There's a recognition. I have done everything wrong. I have done nothing right. I am dependent utterly on your mercy. That is how we come to the Lord. Not thinking that we can do all these things I have done from my youth. No, I haven't. All these things I've messed up from my youth. All these things I have made a mess of. But Jesus did it perfectly for me and I trust him. That's what we need to believe, to hold firmly to, to show these little children that our confidence rests not at all on us, but always and only on Christ. And likewise for the reward. Our catechism asks, how can good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? Throughout the Bible, God promises His people their works done for Him will be rewarded. Jesus even says it in this passage we just read. Peter points out, hey, you know, we all left all that stuff to follow you. And Jesus says, yep, yep. Truly, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who won't receive a hundredfold even now, with persecutions too, and eternal life. But let's be very clear. Jesus is not urging his disciples to work for the reward. It is wonderful to anticipate the rewards God will give, but gaining those rewards can never rest on what we have done because our best works are filthy rags. And our works shouldn't be done for rewards. Our work should be done out of gratitude only. I mean, think about it. If we did everything right, we'd be following the morality set out by God using the life and the strength and the power and the gifts that God gave in order to do what God designed us to do. What did that earn us? You want an attaboy for doing what you were designed to do? No, you still wouldn't earn anything. 
When I go out and start up my car and it starts up, I don't go, yes, it started. I expect it to. That's what it was designed to do. That's what it was built to do. It didn't earn anything extra for that. And see, that's the lesson here, that God deserves all the credit. What we most need, what we most crave, we can do nothing to obtain. We can't obtain eternal life. We can't merit entrance into the kingdom. We can't scheme to gain God's eternal reward. All we can do is trust in God to give it. And He does. He is perfectly faithful to His promises. All we must do is trust our Father. That's the lesson we need to bring to little Claire and little Aaron and all the rest of our kids. Let them see in us absolute confidence in the grace of Christ. Let them see in us that we're not earning, we're not deserving, we're trusting in the Savior. He's the one who provides it all. And if we're showing them that, then they're going to see something else in us. They're going to see a gratitude that pervades our being. The more we come to see, folks, hear this. The more we come to see how reliant we are on the Lord, how utterly unworthy we are, how little we can provide, which is nothing, the more we will be filled with gratitude that will change us, that will transform us. And so that's the last thing we see here. It's, it's brief, but it's important. And that's the response that God deserves. The last question says, doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? That is the fear of the Roman Catholic. If we allow that men are saved by grace alone, they'll live like a bunch of heathens. Well, then what will people think of us? How can we stand before God if we're living like that? But it's not just the Catholic. I mean, the Catholics made it official at the, at the, uh, with the declarations at Trent right after the Reformation. They said anybody that believes that you're saved through grace alone, by what Christ has done alone, received through faith alone, let them be anathema, let them be cursed. They made it official, but you know, a lot of evangelicalism holds to the same thing. Well, if it's entirely by grace, it doesn't even require you to make the choice that God even gives you the faith by which you're saved. Well, well that'll, just, that'll just make us worldly. That'll just make us carnal Christians. You ever hear that term, carnal Christians? People who confess that they believe in Christ, but they live as those who are in the world, of the world. They're afraid that we'll become carnal Christians if we confess this. Well, you know what? We have a word for carnal Christians, hypocrites, false believers, liars. If you're living like those of the world, then you're not really a Christian. Jesus said in, in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Kids, do you get that analogy? A grapevine doesn't produce fruit. The branches on the grapevine are where the fruit is found. Jesus says that he is the vine. We are the branches connected to the vine. Now, if the branches are really connected to the vine, they can't not bring forth fruit. In fact, if you see a branch on that grapevine that doesn't have any fruit, and it's that season, 
then you can be sure if you go back a little ways, you'll find that it's, it's broken off. It's not really part of the vine. But if it is part of the vine, then the life of the vine will flow through that branch and produce fruit, and that's us. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Notice that. It says when he is fully trained. We're not perfect yet. We're far from it. But we're starting to look like our master. We're starting to look like our teacher. Why? Because if our faith is true, then he's working in us not just faith, but sanctification. Not just faith, but holiness. For no good tree bears bad fruit, he says. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we truly belong to Jesus, we will begin bringing forth good fruit. That's who we are. That's our nature as those who are redeemed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is the gratitude that we will invariably show. Because the more we read God's word, the more we come to know God's grace, the more we see how utterly and completely dependent we are on God, the more we'll want to give it all to Him. To show the world how grateful we are. To show Him how overwhelmed we are by his goodness. Far from being indifferent and wicked, we will be filled to overflowing with gratitude toward God. And so, beloved, that's our calling. The message of Lord's Day 24, it's a message we all need to take to heart. It's the message that there is nothing in us that can make us right with God. If it was up to us to make ourselves right with God, to get into His kingdom, to be in His good graces, it'd be like fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. Can't do it. But God does what we can't. God does what we can't. And so we have to rely entirely, utterly, and only on Him. And if we do, then our lives will be filled to overflowing in short order with evidence because we will be filled with gratitude and we will be filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore people will know us by our fruit. And He'll get all the glory. It's like we saw back in Psalm 115. Not unto us. Not unto us, but to your name give the glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, that's what saves us. And therefore, he's the one who gets the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess there's nothing in us. There is nothing in us that is worthy of your love, that is worthy of your kingdom, that is able to stand even for a moment in your presence. And yet you have done in Christ everything we could not. You have imputed to us Jesus' righteousness and his holiness. You have taken away our sin and defilement and condemned it on the cross. You 
have set within us the faith by which we are joined to Christ and you now are bringing forth the fruit that demonstrates our gratitude. All the glory belongs to you. None of it belongs to us. Teach us, Lord, therefore to trust entirely, only, always on you. And may you use us to bring great glory indeed to Jesus our Savior, the Holy Spirit our strength, and you our faithful Father above. Amen. In response to God's grace, let's stand and sing together number 288 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Number 288, We Come, O Christ, to You.
our offering this evening, you'll see in your bulletin, says RMS, Reform Mission Services for Turkey Earthquake Victims. Just a word on that. Um, Two sanctuaries in this building would probably suffice to hold the active Christians in Turkey. There are an exceedingly small number. It might take three. It's a very small number. Um, The earthquake that hit was in the southeastern part, I believe it was the southeastern, southern part of Turkey, near Syria. Um, We have... From fairly recently, from this past year, a missionary in Izmir, which is ancient Smyrna. Um, Chadash was not affected by this. They're in the northern part of the country. Um, But every one of them knows folks that were affected by this earthquake, and it'd be impossible that they would not. Um, Cities were leveled. Um, Entire apartment buildings collapsed. They know of, this is as of uh, the other day, they know of some, oh, I just saw it on here, 12, no, 14,000 people who were killed so far, and that doesn't count the ones in Syria, and it's estimated that they will probably find over 100,000, possibly 200,000 in the apartment buildings as they dig through the rubble. This is a disaster of unprecedented magnitude for uh, for our modern day. Um, and these tiny little churches are seeing that God has given this opportunity to bring the gospel with a glass of cold water. So what this offering is for, and what they're asking churches um, throughout the RMS network, is to take up offerings for immediate assistance so they can bring uh, shoes and blankets and baby formula and diapers and just little necessities along with the comfort of the gospel. And then later on, they're going to be raising money for permanent assistance with housing. Not talking fancy housing, we're talking shipping containers turned into houses. But it's cold. And these folks are, they're literally hundreds of thousands without homes. Um, And then there's going to be a need for ongoing assistance. So they're trying to use it as an opportunity to help in the name of Christ. They do that with tears in their eyes. Chadash um, lost a brother and sister-in-law who were not believers. They're grieving. But in their grief, they're asking us to help them bring the gospel. That's what we're doing. So let's pray for that. Lord, it is beyond our ability to fathom the heartache and the grief and the loss that the people of Turkey and Syria have experienced. And we know that most of them are without the hope of eternal life. Most of them are without the comfort of serving the true God. Father, it feels from a human perspective like a fruitless effort to try to get the gospel to such a massive horde of people in the midst of such chaos. But we know that you delight to take what is weak in the eyes of the world and use it to show the strength of our God. So we pray that you would bless our offering and the offering of your church throughout the world 
to bring not just momentary relief to the people of Turkey and Syria, but also the eternal relief of your gospel. We pray that you would make it effective and that you would comfort and encourage the hearts of Charash and the saints with whom he works to enable them to show the hope of Christ even in the midst of tears. May you be glorified through all of it, Lord. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 459. Number 459 in our Trinity. Uh, We'll sing all four stanzas.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.